The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Today, we are going to resume our study in the book of Mark. As I look out at you, I I realize that many of you started coming during this summer when we were already in the book of Genesis. And it is our habit to go through the book that we are studying from beginning to the end, except for in the summers we take a little bit of a break and we go into an Old Testament book for the summer. And I want you to uh, encourage you that if you came during our series in Genesis, everything that we were looking at in Genesis was looking forward to what we see now. Everything that we've seen in the book of Genesis is a type and shadow of the exact person of Jesus Christ that now we are going to see here who is condescended, living amongst the people of Israel. He is teaching and healing and casting out demons and living a life that is marked by perfect holiness. Our text this morning begins in verse 46, and it will continue through the end of the chapter. However, before we get to that, I'd like to do a quick recap of some of the events that have taken place earlier in Mark chapter 10 for two reasons. First, I want to help catch those people up who were here before and remind them of what we have considered before. And secondly, for those who are new, who have started coming during the summer, I want to tell you where we've been so that you might uh, be right on par with us here. Uh, As you know, if you were here, I split up the recent parts of the book of Mark, uh, chapter 10, into seven main points. And what we're going to do is we're going to do a quick sweeping review of the big uh, points of chapter 10. First, we saw the criteria for discipleship. We see this in verses 13 through 16. The disciples attempt to keep these small children away from Jesus. And it says that Jesus becomes indignant with them. It's the only time we ever see in the entire New Testament, Jesus become indignant with them. What is indignance? It's an outward expression of inward frustration. And it says that Jesus became indignant and began to teach the disciples, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So what is he teaching them here? He is teaching them the criteria for discipleship is humble trust in Jesus, a childlike faith in the Messiah. Secondly, in verses 17 through 22, we see the cost of discipleship. A rich young ruler comes to Jesus. This is one of the most famous stories in the book of Mark. This man approaches Jesus, and from all outward appearances, he seems to say the right thing. He asks, good teacher, what must I do to receive eternal life? Who among us would not desire for our friends and family members who don't know Jesus to ask us this question? From all outward appearances, this man is doing exactly what he should. And the disciples seem to be very excited that this man would be desirous, this man who is powerful and has a lot of influence and has a lot of um, prestige, that he would be interested in joining their team. Remember, these are disciples. They're lowly workers. They're fishermen. But when Jesus reveals the cost of discipleship to this rich young ruler, that you must be willing to give up everything in order to follow Christ and to be a disciple, this man went away sad. For as it says, he had many possessions. Third, we see the commencement to discipleship. Jesus says that it's more difficult for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples are looking at each other and they're looking at this man who's walking away and they say to themselves, if that guy can't get in, how in the world could I ever possibly make it into the kingdom of heaven? And so they ask Jesus, then who can be saved? 
If he can't be saved, then who can be saved? And Jesus responds, With man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. The commencement to discipleship is this. God must supernaturally do a work in the heart of an individual, which brings us, as it were, through the eye of that needle into his kingdom. Fourth, we considered the comforts in discipleship. Peter says, as this man is still walking away, he looks out and he says, wait, if it is God that brings us in, then we're missing something here. He says, but Jesus, and this is his quote, we have given up everything. In other words, if if we didn't have to give up everything, then why did we? And Jesus tells him, it's worth it. He says, it is worth it that everything that you give up is going to be repaid, not in physical blessings, but in spiritual ones, that there is comfort in discipleship. Fifth, we set our hearts upon the cross and discipleship. In verses 32 through 34, Jesus pours out his heart to the disciples. I want you just to scroll down there with your finger in your page and see what he says. He's teaching them what must happen when he comes to Jerusalem. And he says in verse 33, the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and they will deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. He tells them exactly what is going to happen. He is showing them the heart of the gospel, which is the cross. And that is his mission. He is telling them, this is what I am going to do. And he knows what's going to happen to him, but he doesn't run away from it. Rather, he marches directly to it. In verses 35 through 44, we see the disciples now have a deep confusion about discipleship. They don't understand the kind of kingdom that Jesus has come to create. They're still thinking in terms of human government and man-made authority. And that's why right after Jesus says these words, that he is going to Jerusalem to die, Right after this, James and John come to him and they say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? Now hold on to that statement because it will prove very important to unlocking our text this morning. And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. And Jesus lovingly corrects them and corrects their selfish thinking and their arrogance by teaching them, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. And finally, we look to the Christ over discipleship in verse 45, which says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the thesis statement of the book of Mark. If you want a one-sentence summary of everything Mark is trying to teach us here in these words, it is this, that the Son of Man, even this Son of Man, even God's own Son, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And all of this leads us directly to today's text. So please follow along as I start reading in verse 46. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that Jesus of Nazareth, that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. 
and throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Please join me as we pray that God would use these words to change our lives today. Oh God in heaven, you are a God who loves us and it is evident in the fact that you have given us your word. It is evident in the fact that you have given us your spirit that teaches us through the word. Lord, I pray that today you would show us Christ, that we would not only see him as a type or shadow, that we would only not see him as a, uh, as a, a figure in history, Lord, that we would see him as our God and our King and the one that we serve every day. Lord, please let our lives be radically changed through your word this morning, which can only happen if your Holy Spirit works in us. Lord, I pray that no one would rely on their previous knowledge of this text today, but that we would all come in humble submission to what you have to teach us. Lord, please be our teacher. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Before we get into our actual outline this morning, I want to give two preliminary observations about this text that I think are important to understanding it, and it will color everything that we try to learn from it today. First, I want you to see that Mark is intentionally paralleling the healing of this man's eyes with the saving of this man's soul. In verse 52, Jesus says, your faith has made you well. The root word that we see here for well is the word sozo, which is the word for heal, but it is also the same word in Greek as the word save. So that's why some translations will say in this verse, your faith has healed you. And some will actually even say your faith has saved you. He is intentionally paralleling. The Holy Spirit is teaching us through the pen of Paul of Mark, the appropriate way to approach Jesus, that we are to come to him in humility and in faith and that Christ is going to be the one who does the work in us. Everything the disciples got wrong in this chapter so far, all that stuff that we just looked over and, and, and considered, they failed constantly to understand. But this man, Bartimaeus, gets it right. The second preliminary observation that we must come to grips with here is this. Bartimaeus is not the hero of this story. We have a natural propensity in our hearts to look at a, a section like this and to say to ourselves, that guy's just like me. Therefore, if he's the hero, then I am the hero. And we try to read ourselves into these narratives. And so when we see Bartimaeus being glorified, we are therefore attempting to glorify ourselves. And you might be looking at me and saying, I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, please understand, I have heard many sermons on, the, on these words, and I've even preached them. Well, what we do is we come to this text and we say, be like Bartimaeus. Just be like Bartimaeus. He's the hero. Think of him. Look at him. Do what he does. Imitate him. And that is the, the, the wrong thing to consider this morning. And although I will look at him as an example of faith, and although we will consider him as somebody who is humble and we should be like him, he is not the hero. It is not something where I'm just going to tell you, try harder to be like Bartimaeus. This falls far short of the actual point of these verses. These words, just like every other verse in the entire Bible, are intended to point you and to point me to the glory and the holiness and the love of our God. So although I will highlight Bartimaeus and his humble faith, I will also encourage you to learn from it. And I want you to see that the glory from this text and the glory from what happens here all goes to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So our text for this morning is going to be broken up into three points. They're very simple. Point number one, Bartimaeus. Point number two, the crowds. And point number three, Jesus. 
So first, let's talk about this guy, Bartimaeus. Who was he? What is he like? And what can we tell from, about him from this text? First of all, this man was not only a blind man, but he was a poor man. He was a beggar. Mark once again shows us that he is writing not primarily to a, 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 a regional audience that knew Aramaic. He's writing to a large audience that primarily does not know Aramaic because he says something that if you were an Aramaic speaker would be hilarious to you. He says, this is Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. Bartimaeus just means the son of Timaeus. Bar means son of, and Timaeus means Timaeus. So he is the son of Timaeus. And he makes mention that this blind beggar is named Bartimaeus, I think, for a reason. At first, you might say, well, it's not that big of a deal that he's named. But I think it's very interesting that he's named, because if you read the Synoptic Gospels, he is literally the only person that Jesus ever heals that we are given their name. It is the only time that it is made this personal that we are told who this person is. It grounds him historically in reality. This man, Bartimaeus, is named for us in the word of God, which will last forever and will be eternally remembered. I believe that Mark includes this man's name for the exact same reason that he does not include the name of the rich young ruler. Because this man is a true disciple. He is the opposite of the rich young ruler. He is the opposite of the rich young ruler, literally, think about it, in almost every way. He has no influence. He has no money. He has no title. He has no inheritance. He has likely no formal education. And during this time in history, most people who were blind did not ever get married or have children. He, what does he have to offer to Jesus? In short, he is the quintessential opposite of the rich young ruler. He is the last guy the disciples would have thought to recruit to their team. Yet at the end of the story, we see him walking away from Jericho with Jesus and the disciples. He was the beggar who survived by asking for money. This is what beggars do. They sit by the wall of the city gate and they plead for money. Now think about this. Jericho is a city that is on a main road. In fact, Jericho is is an ancient city and the road runs directly through it that goes to Jerusalem. And Jericho, along with Damascus, in fact, is one of the two oldest constantly occupied cities in the world, it is a central hub in Jesus' day of commerce. And especially when people would make their way to Jerusalem for large festivals like the Passover, this was a very good time for him to make a lot of money. People are traveling for a religious reason. They probably have money in their pockets. They're not coming home from vacation. They're going on vacation as it were. So they've still got money in their pockets. This is when he would make his money as he begged alms from the pilgrims that would pass by. But this day was different. And I can imagine Bartimaeus' confusion when the normal hustle and bustle of Jericho was interrupted by a crowd that began to make its way toward the gates. It's likely that Bartimaeus knew something important was taking place. I remember watching a movie about Jesus when I was growing up. And uh, I remember the scene very well, actually. That that Jesus is walking kind of like through a town and there's all these, you know, it's obviously a fake set. It's a very poorly done film. And Jesus is walking and his disciples are all kind of right by him and beside him. And then there's like 400 people just kind of like walking behind him silently, not saying a word. It's not like that. The Bible never gives, gives us the indication that the people are just silently watching, seeing what Jesus would do. No, these people want to get near him. It's just like any other celebrity that you would see walking through a crowded place. People want to get close 
to them. They want an autograph. They want to talk to them. They want to ask them questions. And Jesus, as he is walking to this place, people are crowding around him. This is not just somebody who's famous for being in a movie. This person is one who has, has given sight to blind people, who has raised people who could not walk and given them legs to, to walk with. He has done all sorts of miracles. He has cast out demons and people have heard of it. Now, primarily he's been up in Galilee. Now he comes down into Judea and people are really excited and they are crowding around him. They want to be close to him. And Bartimaeus is hearing what is going on here. And I think it's very interesting because it doesn't tell us who tells him what's going on. doesn't tell us how he discovers it, but I'm sure he began to hear this commotion and either he asked what's this commotion about what's going on. Or perhaps someone in the crowd just Maybe another beggar even said to him, that's Jesus of Nazareth. We don't know how he heard, but what we do know is how he responds to what he hears. As soon as he hears, this is Jesus of Nazareth, what does he do? Well, first I want you to see he has some former knowledge about Jesus. He knows about Jesus, at least intellectually. He knows who he is because as soon as he hears it, he doesn't ask for clarification. He doesn't ask any questions at all. Instead, he immediately begins to yell what must have been at the top of his lungs in order to be heard over the crowd. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, this is a very important phrase we see in verse 47. Let me break it down into two parts. First of all, son of David, what does it mean? Why does he call him this? If you've been with us for this whole series in the book of Mark, or if you've been a really strong student of the word and you know the the book of Mark really well, you'll notice never before this in the entire book of Mark has anyone ever called him son of David. Why would this man all of a sudden, who has never met Jesus, call him the son of David? There are a few reasons that, he, that no one would ever call him this in the book of Mark that we've seen so far. First of all, it's geographical. If you know the history of Israel, you know that originally it was one kingdom under King Saul and then David and Solomon, and then it divided into two kingdoms. And the northern, northern kingdom with Jeroboam, when they went north, they separated. He is not a relative of David. There are a bunch of dynasties that exist. None of those 19 kings are from David. None of them are from David. So no one would ever say who is in that region, we're looking for the son of David. We're looking for for the one who will come as a son of David. So up in Galilee, that's not what they're looking for. But now he enters into Judea, where all of the kings that ever ruled on that throne were all descendants of David. And they are looking for the son of David. So part of it is regional, geographical. He is saying this because he's from the southern kingdom. And it stands to reason that all the people who are in this region are also hoping for this kind of king. That's why when we get a little bit farther into chapter 11 and chapter 12, you're going to see Jesus perfectly and intentionally paralleling himself with David because he is trying to show them, I am the greater son of David. But I also want you to see that it is very unlikely, in fact, nearly impossible, that Bartimaeus would have ever traveled all the 17 miles to Jerusalem and gone to the temple and looked through the records to see, wait a minute, is this guy actually related to David or not? Of course he didn't do that. And it's also unlikely that he knew anyone who ever had done that. He is not digging into the background of David's family tree or Jesus' family tree. So it's highly unlikely that he actually knows for a fact that Jesus is a biological descendant of David, but he is. And it's because he's using this not as a family tree. He is using this name, son of David, as a title not merely a description. Bartimaeus is declaring that Jesus is the one who was to come to be the greater son of David that the Old Testament has promised. There are prophecies in the Old Testament saying that there is one who is coming who will sit on David's throne and who will rule as king forever. And he is looking at Jesus and saying, that is the one who is coming to rule forever. And it should be amazing to us to see that this man who could not see, 
who could not read the scriptures, who had never before encountered Jesus, could see what none of the religious elite or the Pharisees could ever see in Christ. He knew from the scriptures what the Messiah would do when he arrived. Part of those promises come from what we saw earlier in Isaiah 35. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. There's a promise that the Messiah will come and open the eyes of the blind. He has probably heard that Jesus has already done this kind of miracle. And so he knows his Old Testament well. He was also yelling out, have mercy on me. Now this phrase is very important. It seems as though Bartimaeus is making an Old Testament reference here. Now, I don't know if he is aware that he is making this reference or if it's just something that the Holy Spirit is working through him for our sake, through the pen of Mark. I don't know. But what we do know is this. The phrase, have mercy on me, is only used one time in the entire Old Testament from an individual towards God. One time is it ever used. And it's from a psalm. It's a psalm that was very uh, commonly sung in the worship services of the Jewish people. And they would have sung this song over and over and over. And the opening line is, have mercy on me. It is the opening line of the, one of the most famous psalms, Psalm 51. Now, there are many songs that you and I know by heart. We've just heard them a million times on the radio. We've heard them all our lives. If I said the first four words, you would know everything else in the song. We could do a game right now of name that tune, and I could just give you the first two words to a lot of songs, and you would know everything about that song. If I said Amazing Grace, you'll know it. If I said Hey Jude, you'll know it. If I said Nessun Dorma, at least some of you will know it, right? You're going to have a sense of when that song is sung, what it means, and why it's used. And so it's very possible that this man is calling to mind this particular psalm. Psalm 51 is the song of David that he wrote when he was heartbroken and repentant over his sin with Bathsheba. He is pleading to the Lord to forgive his sin. And allow me just to read a portion of what says, he says in the beginning of this amazing psalm. He says, have mercy on me, O God. Now just pause there. If he is saying this psalm, if he is actually referencing intentionally this psalm, he is declaring that Jesus is equal to God in his ability to have mercy on him. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you and you only have I sinned and done evil in your sight. This is precisely the heart of anyone that would approach Jesus Christ for salvation. This is what we must have in us if we are to approach him to be saved. And it appears as though that is what Bartimaeus has in his heart. At first, the crowd attempts to keep him away from Jesus, but Jesus stopped and he gives attention to Bartimaeus and notice what he does in verse 50. It says that Bartimaeus does this. It says, and throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Now this probably doesn't seem like a big deal to most of us, but please understand that clothing in those days was very difficult to come by. It was very expensive, especially for a beggar. And a cloak was not merely like a jacket, not merely something that was easily replaceable. It was like the Swiss army knife of ancient clothing. It served to protect him from the weather, but it also served to be a blanket. It served to be a pillow. It served probably for a poor man like this to be his entire bed. He would have held all of the money and all of the possessions he had in the inner pockets of this cloak. But just in case this would become any kind of hindrance to him or snag on something or someone would catch it or pull it, he throws it aside and he makes his way quickly to Jesus. Now, when I lived in Queens, 
I used to do this thing where I would, I would leave my windows down in my car all the time whenever I parked somewhere at a parking meter. And I always had this cup of money in, in the middle console of my car, just coins for the, you know, for the meters. And one day I came back to my car, and of course my car was still there, but all the coins were gone. And what was I to expect? I'm leaving money open in the presence of a bunch of strangers. Well, he's in a crowd of strangers. He has no idea who these people are. They're probably most of them not even from Jericho. They're coming with Jesus from wherever he has just been. They're traveling along with him. Who are these people? He doesn't know, but he leaves everything that he has, his worldly possessions behind as he runs to Jesus. Once again, we see this man is the anti-rich young ruler, leaving everything behind. So he came to Jesus and Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Notice this is the exact same question that Jesus asked the disciples in verse 36. And James and John answered, we want you to make us basically second in command with you. We want you to elevate us. We want ourselves to be great and everyone below us. They were filled with selfish ambition and the desire to be first above everyone else. But I think if we look closely, we will see a very different heart in Bartimaeus. If you look at this, you're going to see humble faith. You're going to see persistent faith. You're going to see radical faith. He is humble in that he knows he's not worthy, yet he's coming to him. Have mercy on me. A humble person asks for mercy. A proud person does not. He is persistent when people say, no, stop. Don't say anything else. Go back to the wall. Sit down. And they try to stop him. He continues shouting, son of David, have mercy on me. He has radical faith, leaving everything behind. He recognized that Jesus was the Messiah and Jesus is the treasure. So I want you to see why I know that's true. Why does, he, why does we know that he sees Jesus as treasure? Maybe he sees his own eyes as treasure. Well, here's how I know. Because the end of the story in verse 52, Jesus it says, and he immediately recovered his sight and followed him on the way. He doesn't just recover his sight. He follows after Jesus. Now we don't know this for sure, but he's getting ready to enter into Jerusalem. He's getting ready to enter into the last days. Jesus is getting ready to enter in the last days of his life where he will be crucified and then he will rise. In Acts chapter uh, 2, we know there are 120 people in that upper room. Who are those people? It's very possible that one of them is Bartimaeus. This man who left everything behind in Jericho, and he made his way with Jesus to Jerusalem. And I want to pause at this juncture and just make two quick applications. First of all, if you don't know Jesus from a worldly perspective, I don't know why you're here, but I'm thankful that you are. Thank you for coming. We love you. We're really glad that you're here. But I know from God's perspective, he brought you here. He led you to this place. And I want you to know that the, the Bible describes you like Bartimaeus. You are like this man. It also describes you as being without hope and without God in the world. It describes you as being under the wrath of God and an enemy of God. But please look at this story and understand that Jesus is good. And Jesus is compassionate. And Jesus is kind. And he came to save all sorts of people. Something that you won't see here in Mark's gospel but is present in the gospel of Luke is there is another person that Jesus saved that day in Jericho. It was a man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is very different than, than this guy. Zacchaeus is a short tax collector who climbs up in a tree. He wants to see Jesus. It's a cute children's song, but it's also a radical story because what it shows us is this is the last guy the people in that town thought could be saved. One, because he is a cruel, wicked, tax collecting sinner. And one, because Bartimaeus, He's the last person that could help Jesus. These two people, why would Jesus save them? Because Jesus loves people and he came to save his people. And he, you might be here and say, Jesus can't save me. I'm too much of a sinner. Maybe you're looking at yourself like, 
like Zacchaeus or Bartimaeus. I'm just too far outside. No one is too far gone. Jesus' blood is powerful to save. So I encourage you, if you do not know Jesus, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Repent of your sins. And Jesus, I want you to understand, he died for all types of sin. If you are a sinner, then you are one of the people that meet the criteria for Jesus' death on the cross. He died to pay for sin, not just certain kinds of sin. He died for all kinds of people and all who call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. So please, if you don't know Jesus, don't leave without talking to me. I want you to know him today. Application number two, this is for those of us who do know Jesus. I want you to understand this. The gospel is not just to help you get saved. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is not just the entrance into the door. It is the way that you live out every day of your life. Jesus has been teaching this to his disciples over and over and over. See, the disciples keep getting it wrong. They keep thinking that they're doing things in their own strength, that they are worthy, that they are capable, that they are the gatekeepers, that they are the the bodyguards of Jesus, that they are the ones who are going to be leaders, second in command. But what they don't do is they don't come to Christ regularly with a humble, persistent, radical faith. And if you know Jesus, you need to find yourself every day being like Bartimaeus. You never become strong. You're never strong enough to live the Christian life on your own strength. Or as Jesus points out in John 15, five, apart from me, you can do nothing. I just want to apply this even further to one aspect of our life. And that is our Christian discipline of prayer. How is your prayer life? Do you pray in desperation like Bartimaeus did? Or do you pray just kind of as routine? Lord, please uh, bless this food. Amen. Lord, please protect me today. Amen. Charles Spurgeon, preaching once on this text, said, No prayer ever reaches God's heart that does not first come from our heart. And then he continued later in the sermon and said, Nine-tenths of the prayers that are prayed in our own public services have so little zeal in them that if they obtain a blessing, it would be a miracle of miracles indeed. When you pray, do you really pray? Or are you just saying words, mouthing things to God? We should be like Bartimaeus, recognizing our desperate state before God. We need him every hour. So call out to him, live your life in light of him, recognize that you need him, and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, not just to be saved, but in every aspect of your life to help you live the Christian life. Are you walking in this kind of ongoing, persistent, humble faith, whereby you trust in Jesus and acknowledge your daily reliance upon him for all of your spiritual growth? Are you doing that? If not, I call you to repentance and to live like Bartimaeus today prayerlessness and avoiding your Bible is a sign that you have stopped relying on Christ and you are trying to rely and do all things on your own. I've got this taken care of. May our lives be marked as people of this church with a dependency on Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's move now to point number two, which is the crowd. This will be short, but I believe it's a very important point. The first response that the crowd gives to us of this man, Bartimaeus, should be no surprise, right? Many rebuked him. They tell him to be silent. This is exactly what we would expect if any famous person were to be walking through Penn Station. There's a large crowd around him. There are a bunch of people. Listen, nobody knows this person. Well, who is it? I mean, maybe it's, it's, it's LeBron James, right? Very recognizable, very famous man. He's walking through Penn Station. All kinds of people are going to surround him, right? But then there's a poor person, a beggar by the wall, who is sitting there all day, every day, and everyone knows that he's there. They walk right past him, and he stands up and he starts shouting, hey, I want your attention. LeBron, come here, talk to me. What is everyone going to do? Hey, chill out. Sit down, man. Relax. Does that person have any more right? The person who says, shh, 
Does that person have any more right to access to LeBron James than the person by the side of the wall? No, absolutely not. Both of these people are outside of his circle, right? And now for some reason, these people who are in the crowd surrounding Jesus think that they are better than this guy and say, hey, seriously, back up, sit down, quiet old man. There's nothing that you need to see here. Just shh. And here what we see happening is the crowd is standing as a barrier to Jesus. I want you to see that in this chapter, chapter 10 of Mark, over and over and over, Mark seems to have a very strong focus on the response of people, especially the disciples, when someone is attempting to come to Christ. When the children try try to come to Christ, what do they do? No, 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 no. He doesn't have time for this. And Jesus is indignant with them. When the rich young ruler comes, they're like, yes, yes, maybe we'll actually have a good meal tonight if this guy joins our team. They want him on their side. And Jesus says, give up everything, sell all your possessions and give it to, give it to the poor. And the man goes away sad. And they're like, what is going on here? And it shows us the heart of the people who were surrounding Jesus. Now, we don't know if the disciples are part of the ones hushing this man or not. We're not sure. But we do know this, that the crowd is a barrier and they are trying to shut him up. So here's our third application for the day. Christians, let me ask you, are you unintentionally like this crowd? Are you acting as a barrier to Jesus Christ? Please understand what I'm asking here. There is a huge difference between people being offended at the gospel and being, people being offended at you. There is a massive difference between those two things. Now, we live in a world where many of us are frustrated by how overly sensitive people can be these days. Many people have a very thin skin. They are quickly offended. And we look at that and we say, what's wrong with them? But that does not give us license to be offensive. It does not give us license to be aggressive or to be rude or to be pushy or to be a troll on social media or quite simply put, to be a jerk. Are people offended and are you creating barriers because of you? Now the gospel will offend. We know that. But do not set up any secondary barriers. The people in this crowd were attempting to keep this man quiet until Jesus said, come, call him to me. And at that point, notice everyone changed. I want to ask you, are you really living in such a way that, you know, when when we have a visitor here in, in our midst who doesn't know Jesus, you're kind to them, you love them, you reach out to them. I think you're very friendly to them. But what if you met that same person outside of this room? If you met them at the grocery store, would they even know that you're a Christian? If you met them in a a family gathering, if you met them in another location, would they even know that you are a Christian? Are your conversations with them gospel-centered and evangelistic? Would you be trying to win them to Christ? Or would you be more concerned about making them act like you or vote like you or think like you? Are you creating a barrier? Stand for truth. Stand for truth and never give up an inch of the gospel. Never. But let's make sure that we are doing our best to be inviting, inviting people towards Christ. Be winsome, be kind, be gracious as you plead and reason and debate with those that don't know our king. Speaking of our king, let's move now to point number three, which is Jesus. All the way back in Mark chapter 10, verse one, it says, and he, Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. All the events that have taken place in this chapter have been part of Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem. Remember, Jesus has already told his disciples why he is going there. In fact, he's told them three times very clearly what he's going to do. The last time we've we've just read a minute ago probably just happened days before this event in Jericho. 
He says, we, uh, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. What's going to happen? The son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. He knows what's coming. Notice Jesus is still being gracious and kind to his disciples, even though they keep messing up and putting their collective foot in their mouth. He is gracious and kind to them. But also notice the love of Christ as we see it in this text. He is walking to Jericho surrounded by a mass of people. He is constantly being bombarded with questions and requests. He is probably exhausted from a long journey. He's hungry. He's thirsty. His body is surely worn out. Yet look what happens in verse 49 when he hears the voice of Bartimaeus resounding through the crowd. It says, and he stopped. Jesus, marching on his way to the cross, stopped. Because of this man. And he says, call him. Jesus is on his way to fulfill the most important mission in the entire history of the entire world. Yet he stops for this man. Surely this is one of those people that would be classified in the category of sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus compassionately says, call him. One of the biggest problems that arose in the early church is also one of the biggest problems that commonly arises in our churches today. And that is that people view themselves as great and they look down upon others. They initiate, they imitate the world by seeking to a, a, have the approval of those who can help them or help them advance in their own greatness. And they step on anyone who they perceive to be weak or insignificant or unhelpful. A couple of years ago, I was listening to a talk by a man who was a church planter. Um, he's planted several churches. Um, they're big in number. And he was doing this talk and I was, you know, as somebody who was getting ready to church plant was listening carefully to him. And here's something he said. He said, don't focus on marketing to college students. They won't be able to give enough money to support your church plant. Don't market to older folks. They don't have enough energy to serve. You need to market yourself to young families who can come in and immediately bring something to the table. Now, that's because I don't have a perfect memory, not a direct exact quote, but it's not far off from what this man was saying. And he added to that. And all I could think was, what would Jesus say if he was physically present standing next to this man right now? Don't be fooled though. Even the best of churches were in danger of this kind of thinking and this kind of attitude. It's not just something that we do as pastors or as a body or as as, as a corporate unit. This is something that happens on the individual level. Consider one of the healthiest churches in the New Testament, the church at Philippi. It is to them that Paul wrote, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And how is it that this mind came to be in us? Because it was first in Jesus. Unlike us, Jesus is worthy of all the world's adoration. Unlike you, Jesus is deserving of everyone's constant service. But instead of coming to be served, he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now I'm going to allow James chapter 2 verses 1 through 5 to do the speaking for our fourth application this morning. It says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold... Hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? 
Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Jesus stopped. These are my favorite words in this entire text. Jesus stopped. He took the time for this man who the world would see as insignificant. And Jesus said to him, your faith has made you well. He healed him. He saved him. And then Jesus continues walking. That's why the most important words, I believe, are the last three in this passage. It says, on the way. Look at your Bibles, the last three words, on the way. He went with him on the way. On the way to where? Where is he going? Jericho is 825 feet below sea level. It is one of the low points in that region. And he's getting ready to start the 17-mile walk up a sharp incline to Jerusalem, 3,500 feet higher. It is not just the march up Calvary. He is marching to Jerusalem, knowing what is coming to him. He is marching up this hill. And next week, we're going to begin chapter 11. That is what we traditionally call the triumphal entry. It's the beginning of the last week of Jesus' life before the cross. And it's there that Jesus will bear the sin of his people. It is there that he will die. And it is there that he will be raised. What a wonderful savior that we have. I hope that you were encouraged this morning. If you have any questions, there's a lot more in this text. There's a lot of meat here. If you have any questions or thoughts, I would welcome them after the service is over. But for now, let's pray. Oh Lord, we love you. Father, we thank you that you are a merciful God. We thank you, Lord, that you are our example in humbly loving others around us, not seeing ourselves as better than anyone. Lord, I pray that you would also help us to have this mind in ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would be people who are quick to pray to you and trust in you and rely on you and recognize that we can do nothing in our own strength. Lord, I pray that you would help us have victory over sin, that you would help us to be kind to others. Lord, I pray that we would not be a barrier to those who need to come to Christ. Help us to be kind in our, in our walk. Lord, help us to be winsome in our evangelism. And Lord, I pray that in all of the things that we've heard today, you would receive maximum glory from our lives. Lord, change us, we pray. We desire to be more like you, that we might worship you more fully. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.